Hey there, and welcome to the latest episode of the Drinkable Globe podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Cialetti, and I recently got back from Madrid. That's where I recorded the interview for this edition. Uh, It's with a friend, Brian Roth. We were both in Madrid for a press trip. Uh, It was sponsored by the Mal Brewery in Madrid. So we got to taste some great beer, have some great food. I'm still in love with the little Kanye glasses, those like 6.7 ounce glasses that you get around happy hour there. Uh, it's the perfect size to drink, especially if you're going to move on somewhere else or you want to try something else. That's all I ever want. I really don't ever want a full pint. I'm notorious for leaving probably a third of the beer left in my glass when I move on to something else. So the Kanye glass that is very common in Spain, uh, it's same same size, different shape than the Stanga glass that you get in Cologne for Kolsch. I probably pronounced that wrong. I probably mispronounce everything on this podcast because I'm just a dumb American white guy. But uh, another thing that I thought was great about uh, Madrid was uh, the gin culture there. You know, probably a decade, decade and a half ago, they really got crazy for gin. They elevated the gin and tonic drinking experience. They started putting it in this gorgeous goblet-sized glass. They have a much more generous pour of gin in it. The ratio favors gin over tonic. Uh, They use these amazing fresh garnishes it could be fruit it can be herbs like fresh basil Uh, it's just a wonderful wonderful drinking experience and they've also really gotten into vermouth as well a lot of bars you can get vermouth on tap you drink it straight or on the rocks of course you get it in a cocktail as well but uh, it seems pretty common there that you just get it in a small glass and you just sip it just like that which is an incredible way to drink it it really reacquainted me with the beverage because i've only really ever had it in cocktails you know obviously it's a component of the manhattan you get it in martinis but i don't think i ever really drank it neat so that was a lot of fun and it really gave me a new appreciation for vermouth but uh we're not talking too much about either of those drinks we're talking mostly about beer after all that's why we were there and uh brian roth my guest he is the director of the north american guild of beer writers he also was a freelance writer he does a lot of work with uh, good beer hunting he also does our podcast and uh, this was sort of a crossover episode because I interviewed him for this, and he interviewed me for his. I'm not sure when that's going up, but uh, probably around now. This episode is going to be a little longer than most because he had a lot of wonderful things to say. Uh, he's a podcaster, so it goes without saying that he's a great communicator, much better communicator than I am, as I am stumbling over this intro. Anyway, here we go with my conversation with Brian Roth. Where's my beer? Did I bring my beer in here? Uh, no, it's definitely oh, inside. Oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> Do you want me to grab it for you? Yeah, can you grab the beer? Yeah. Thank you, sir. Yeah, now it's have officially en- official. Have to enjoy this lovely room temperature <laughs> now beer. As it was meant to be. Cinco Estrellas. Uh, oh, sorry. I can't believe I said it that way. I took Spanish. Cinco Estrellas. Not Estrellas. Cinco Estrellas. Cheers. 1890. Mao Cerveza Especial. Because we're here in Madrid. It's a beautiful place to be. Sitting on my private balcony at this lovely hotel we're in. The most beautiful place to be. You can probably hear the hum of an air conditioner. I'm hoping it's not picking that up too much. But also, you hear some jazz going on in the back, which is really cool. Adds a nice little touch. Do you think it's coming from that neon bar over there? That can be the only the only potential place. Uh, if it's neon, then in the middle of uh, a wonderful Spanish evening, 50% chance, I'll say, it's jazz involved. All right, well. That's math. That's math. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll buy that. It's fine. <laughs> I like your percentage. Oh, I see snow-covered mountains in the distance. Look. Sort of. Oh, yeah. A little bit of snow. It's June. How That's lovely. Nice. All right, well, I'm here... In lovely Madrid with Brian Roth, who is a beer writer extraordinaire. Thank you. Um, you are the head of the Nas- uh, how- North American Guild of Beer Writers. Yes. This is most, one of the most cumbersome <laughs> <laughs> Nagbua. Nobody calls it Nagbua, thankfully. Nagbua. Yeah. 
Any is there ever going to possibly change that in any way, just so you get a cool acronym? Uh, that might be a uh, uh, up to the vote of the the populace, I think. But at least for now, it's done the trick. It's oh, an easy okay. enough acronym to yeah, spell I out. Just I know it's it's yeah. fine as to spell it. I, I I know the acronym better. It's easier for me yeah. to just say NAGBW than it is for me to remember what it even stands for. Still too many letters. Because first, I, I always want to default to National Association. I'm like, wait, no, that's not right. <laughs> We've got friends from uh, Canada. It's the uh, fucking and Canadians that are ruining things. Several other European countries as well. Sorry, Dantes. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen Beaumont, if you remember, I don't know. Is Stephen Beaumont a member? I think so. Okay. Yeah. And anyone else in Canada, I'm forgetting. Celine Dion, are you a member? <laughs> Michael J. Fox. Be some nice cultural cachet, I think, if they were to join. Let's see how many Canadian people we can mention. Wayne Gretzky. Oh, good one. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the late Alan Thick. Seth Rogen. I forgot Seth Rogen. And, and also, isn't Michael Sarah? He's Canadian, too, he is, isn't he? Uh, as is Ryan Gosling. And uh, Jay Baruchel, that whole group, they're all like they're Canadian. They're all Canadian. Another person who is Canadian is a name that I will say right now. That is, I don't know. I believe Thomas Middleditch is Canadian as well from Silicon Valley. Middleditch. Ah, Richard from Silicon Valley. Uh As is Monica from Silicon Valley. Amanda Crew, she is also Canadian. I don't watch that show. Why don't you watch that show? I know of it. You're missing out on fine television there. it's, It's one of those shows that I know I would like, but reasons which is probably i have enough shows that i'm watching already yeah yeah i've never actually started all right well we're running out of canadians the good thing about the one thing i know about that show justin trudeau sorry justin trudeau <laughs> yes that should have been the first one um is that they have an accurate representation of regional craft beer on that show they actually have people drinking California beer that it actually exists in real life. On Silicon Valley? Uh, yes. you, you know that you haven't watched a single episode it's of this show, but it's, so why don't you watch it then? To see a very accurate uh, depiction of craft beer. I feel like that is a good threshold for me to exist at this point in time, to at least know that trivia. Mm-hmm. You know, HBO's been, HBO shows have been good about that, because there used to be a show called Hung. Did you ever watch Hung? I did, the first season. Well, there was this. There were probably a couple of scenes where I noticed they were drinking Founders, and it and the show takes place in the Greater Detroit area, so uh, you know they're keeping it quasi local. I mean, yeah. in and in Walking Dead has famously included Terrapin several oh, times. Yeah, and also um, uh, Sweetwater too. I've seen yes. I've seen episodes where they're um, where they were in like some supermarket or whatever, and there was all the Sweetwater on the shelf, and it just made me sad because I thought about. How long that beer must have been sitting there in the apocalypse, and it no was probably really bad. No air conditioning. It was probably really bad. Yeah. Well, little things. But you know, um, if you're eating dog food, then maybe a uh, six-month expired IPA mm-hmm. in the middle of Atlanta summer may not be so bad. Good. <laughs> It's all context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's the best you're going to do. <laughs> but I, I will bet that, you know, bourbon and stuff like that would probably fare well in the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, oddly enough, I think... Not, not, the, not in the barrels, maybe, not so much, but, you know, the already bottled stuff would probably do really well. So my... Uh, I, ha- I have homebrewed off and on for maybe six or seven years, mm-hmm. and I've had a slight half-joke where uh, I've told people that should the apocalypse come, that skill would be of particular interest because I could make something that would eventually probably run out pretty quickly um, and people would definitely have interest in. Mm. Uh, and I don't know why, aside from perhaps overall safety, a like a still hasn't been introduced yet in Walking Dead because I feel like that would just be a natural progression of people who finally have time on their hands and can survive and need something to do. Yeah, but do you really think that that's a priority? Other, other than it's probably it a safe be. way to drink water. I think it could be. I think it could be a priority. Well, you know, there was an episode um, where... Do you, you watch The Walking Dead? I do. Okay. There was an episode a few seasons back uh, when Daryl and Beth were on the run, and Beth was saying she had never tasted an alcoholic drink in her life, you know, because her father was... A recovering alcoholic, so she never really drank. She was also a teenager, I think, so mm-hmm. that was part of it. Um, but she's with um, she's with Daryl, 
So they're they're at some bar. They're they're uh, sort of hiding out at some bar that they find, and she picks up a bottle of peach schnapps. She's like, "Peach schnapps, is this good? Can I? Sh- should this be my first drink?" And then he's like, "Daryl's like, you ain't gonna be drinking no peach schnapps." <laughs> he's like, "Here," and he like finds some moonshine and he gives her. Frig- I don't know where he got That's, the moonshine. I think he had a stash somewhere. It's a good on character script writing. So that was as that was as close to distilling as the show got because it led me to believe that maybe. The Dixon family mm-hmm. had a still, and they did a little bit of illicit activity. I, that's the thing. If any, if there were to be any character who would be taking part in that, I think that the background is already there to make that just a thing that he could say. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I've done this. Let's go make some, I don't know, whiskey or whatever it is, I guess. Vodka, moonshine. Yeah, I don't know what he was using as a yeah. base. It could have been, you know, he could have been making because his brother probably did. His brother did time in prison because I know he had a stash of drugs or whatever. And he mm-hmm. just, I wonder if he was making um, what do they call that stuff? Um, uh, it was in my first book. I can't believe I don't even remember the name of it. Pruno, Pruno. Pruno. That's that's, um, that's the prison official hooch. term for prison wine. Prison wine. Yes. yes. And it's not actually distilled because how the hell are you going to really distill anything in prison? It's just you Patience. take you no, but you take like. <laughs> You basically take packages of ketchup and uh, relish, uh, sort of rotting fruit, anything that you can sort of smuggle out of the um, of the cafeteria, and then you you put it in a little bit of water and then you hide it away somewhere and just let it ferment, and that's, that's basically how Pruno comes about. In uh, in high school, uh, in our cafeteria, we had amongst our drink options. You know, we had milk. Everybody has milk. Uh, but we had juices that you could get as well, and it came in little, I don't know, maybe six or eight ounce plastic cups that was an aluminum foil seal over top you had to pull off. And so I think it, it was probably senior year, because that's when my friends and I did the stupidest stuff. We thought it would be funny to try to make a prison wine using that grape juice. Oh, so we popped it open, and we put it in a locker that um, was not used, and it was just left empty at the beginning of the year, so we figured that would be free. So we put it in like the first week of the school year and just let it sit mm-hmm. the entire year. So this was um, September through June. Mm-hmm. Nothing happened, but it seemed at the time, you know, when you're a precarious 18-year-old, that something positive and exciting should happen, and it just ended up smelling really bad. Oh, so did, so you know, it didn't convert anything to alcohol, like no. even... I mean, I guess you, I mean, you no, can't really know of at least. Well, you can't really control what microbes are getting involved and whether they're no. even surviving long enough. It's. I think the microbes were entirely teen hormones. <laughs> <laughs> Middle of a senior hallway in a high school. That's, Oddly that's enough, a disturbing not as image. strong as we thought they were. Jokes on us. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so tell me about some of the stuff that um, that you're working on. Some of the publications you write for. You know how you got into beer writing just a little about yourself sure our listening audience all three of them <laughs> yeah um i worked in newspapers i studied journalism in college and uh i worked uh, did some freelancing during and then i worked at a newspaper immediately after mm-hmm. uh and when it came time that i realized that i did not want to work in newspapers anymore um i kind of fell backwards into a job uh at Duke University, of which I still work as my regular 9 to 5. Uh, but I started doing a blog because it was at the time in North Carolina. I moved there in 2008, two years after state law was changed to allow for beer sales above 6% ABV. Mm-hmm. So the beer industry was changing very quickly, and I, as much as a poor college student can be, was interested in beer come you know my junior, senior years. And so when we could get... There goes uh, a plane, by the way, just to wait a second. Before, yeah, no. Well, All right, there we go. Just gonna keep going. I'm yeah, sorry. no, no, no. Um, so uh, I started a blog uh, at a time when beer was becoming much more popular, and I had kind of been thinking about and it. And what was that blog called? Bit. It was uh, called, still called, This Is Why I'm Drunk. This Is Why I'm Drunk. Um, I have not updated it in quite some time uh, because as I got more involved in regular freelance work, I just it was really a matter of attention, and that uh, if I was going to be spending my time writing things on assignment uh, for All About Beer, which is the first publication I worked with, and then I worked with uh, Beer Advocates, uh, and then Good Beer Hunting, and I've also worked with um, 750, and I've had very brief stints doing a couple of pieces for Paste and Thrillist. It was a case where um, 
if I'm spending X amount of hours a week mm. do, working on beer-related writing, uh, I need to just prioritize. And so that's kind of, that's especially the last year or so, has really pulled me away from the blog, which still exists because I think it's a valuable resource in mm. terms of just my own education and having information available to people. Um, but uh, I worked with All About Beer for um, a couple of years uh, as we're sitting down to talk about this, may, maybe RIP, RIP uh, All About Beer. Um, they had announced that they won't be publishing again in 2018. Yeah. Um, so it had been some time since I'd written for them. Uh, beer Advocate, who I worked for for a year, year and a half or so, pretty regularly, Um just switch to quarterly so that makes it beneficial in terms of just free time to potentially work with them as well which is nice but mm. a lot of my attention right now is focused with good beer hunting um which is a digital magazine podcast long form writing uh where i help to um oversee and provide the majority of the content for the sightline section which is kind of like the news of the day mm-hmm. kind of stuff so i've been doing that a lot lately uh, which has in- included a variety of uh, like multi-part series oh, cool uh so for example uh in may i had written a four-part series exploring uh aspects of i've been describing as human resources but the four-part series that i did it was a look at uh, pay and hiring mm-hmm. rates both from a quantitative perspective and then also uh, like the anecdotal stories that people in the industry would tell too about how they're building culture, about how they try to recruit and retain employees, Mm -hmm. people who are trying to get into beer, why it is that they'll forego potential money elsewhere to live what is essentially a very like low, a relatively low income life Mm -hmm. for most people. Um, It varies very much by geography and business, but on a whole, the average salary for someone who works in beer, uh, even the most highest paying jobs, which essentially be brewing and or owning, um, aren't great. Um, There are some cases where it's on par with national averages for what the median income, annual income would be. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for the most part, uh, you know, a lot of people who are working full time are working below the national average. And even in some cases, there's uh, one particular person I spoke with who's been jumping around brewing uh, jobs for quite some time. He's lived at or below the federal po- poverty line uh, wow. because it's him, his wife, and they have three kids. And uh, because childcare is very expensive, yeah. uh, she, his wife, uh, stays at home and cares for the children. And he has worked hourly paying jobs and beer to try to pursue his ultimate dream of being able to provide for his family doing what what he describes as the only thing he could ever see himself doing um he had played hockey before but due to uh professionally uh in college he had played in college but had to stop because he had too many concussions and so what he thought was going to be a potential uh athletic career that would have provided again maybe not high paying but his passion was sport Mm. um he had to stop and found out that he really loved beer and he's tried other things but every time the way that he told me it was that uh, he could just never stick with it because he was not passionate about. He tried. Uh, can't, it wasn't insurance, but it was something to do with home care. Yeah. Um, he left because he did it for a few months and just hated it. Mm. And he wanted to be a brewer and continues to want to be a brewer. Uh, and so it's things like that. I mean, on a whole, those are the kinds of stories and people that really interest me. And well, I how did drive. how did you connect with all these people? For that story, what started out as um, a collection of pulling data related specifically to salary and hiring, Mm. Um, there was, uh, for studious beer story readers, there was a piece in the Atlantic which came out at this point, maybe beginning of 2018, end of 2017, that talked about how craft beer was this amazing story because job growth was coming in exponential numbers from craft beer, which Mm. is entirely true, but did not tell the entirety of the story about why that was happening. And Mm. then there was a follow-up to that by an economist who broke it down by the size of the brewery, which was the key there, is that you're literally creating jobs that did not exist before if you're a brewery that is opening. Yeah. And as we've had thousands of breweries opening, uh, the majority, around 75%, who produce below 
single 1,000 barrels. Mm -hmm. These are small-time production spaces yeah. that, you know, it might be a owner and a brewer and one other full-time staff. So anytime one, they're creating, say, in that example, three new jobs that never existed before. And then whatever they add is, again, coming from zero. So the numbers look great and they are great but there are specific reasons for that and so i don't think either of those explicitly hit on that and so that's why i wanted to explore it to spell it out one when it comes to hiring yes it's craft breweries yes it's small craft breweries but here's the reason why and that's because if you look at the scope of what happens as a brewery grows essentially it's three to four full-time employees up until about 2,500 barrels. And then every significant jump after that, you're adding, in some cases, double the number of staff. So if you're going up to, say, 2,500 and you're going to make the jump to 5,000, I don't have the numbers in front of me, uh, but you're essentially going from three to six. And so you're doubling what your employee base was. Uh, and then the flip side of that was also I was really curious about what people were getting paid. Uh, and so part that's a little bit murky um, because the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, they, they capture brewery salary data, but it is focused solely on production breweries. Okay. Uh, so brew pubs are not included. So it's while it's representative and I think uh, decent, it is not holistic. And that shows up because the BLS data shows a little bit higher average salary for people in the brewing industry. Mm -hmm. And again, that's also because it includes everybody from um, you know the smallest brewery in a production brewer in the U.S. up to uh, Anheuser-Busch who may be paying their executives, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so all of that is one pool that's averaged. Oh, oh. Uh, and so, like, I talked with uh, the, the, beer, the Beer Institute, for example, where their data for the average the average employee in the beer industry was something like 35% above the median national income, mm -hmm. so, and that's salary and benefits. So essentially what they were saying is that the average brewery worker made $80,000, which I don't think is real. No. <laughs> Some people, yes, a very small number, but, if you, but that, again, includes... Everybody, yeah, you're talking from the biggest conglomerate to the smallest brewery. Like you're saying, like the like the marketing VP at you know Miller Coors or or AB is included. Is probably making four hundred grand a year. Yes. So yes, and so um, there's the BLS data. There's the there's data from the Beer Institute. And there is also data which is much more reflective of the reality, uh, which is survey data from the Brewers Association. Mm. And so every year, Bart Watson, the chief economist, uh, provides an opportunity for craft breweries to um, answer surveys that relate yeah. to hiring and salary. And so if you look at that, it's much more reflective of what you would assume the reality be. So, you know, person who works in the tap room, the average salary is twenty thousand yeah, dollars a yeah. year and these are small sample sizes but significant enough that it's still you could look at it and see it as a worthwhile number to talk about so we've got you know whatever seven thousand breweries and we may be talking about you know like hundreds of breweries responding providing this information to the ba so i think you know even if you hit those small percentage points if you're around ten percent like that's still good like that still would provide an accurate representation Okay. So, uh, and so that led me to talking to people. So there was one half with the numbers, and then in terms of culture, you know, the thing that really caught my eye that I had interest in was this idea that once you get to a certain size is when you start hiring significant numbers of employees. Yeah. And so one of the breweries that I talked to was Burial Beer in Asheville, uh, which is not necessarily in my backyard, but I'm familiar with them. I'm on the opposite state of, side of North Carolina. Yeah. Um, because they had just recently announced about six months prior to me starting my reporting that they were going to invest uh, like a couple million dollars in a major expansion. And so they were going to go from... Uh, all told, what was maybe about again like five or six thousand barrels to they are currently above ten thousand, and then they're looking to maybe double that in that long run. Mm. So that jump that I had talked about in terms of going from you know uh, five digits or uh, four digits to five. So if you're going from five thousand to ten, that's that's a lot, yeah. both in production but also in who you're hiring and the kind of people you're hiring. 
So they were adding employees to handle new tap room possibilities, new brewers. They're going to add food service because they're, they've mm. got like a little, I've been describing it as like a compound. It's multiple buildings. So they've got, you know, a tap room, their brewery, a restaurant. And so all of these jobs are kind of converging because they are growing along the way. Um, so there's that. Um, ben Edmonds at Breakside Out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, shared stories with me about both his own attempt to get into the industry and then as a leader with that brewery now what it's like trying to provide worthwhile um, both professional and personal opportunities for people and these are like I say I describe it as HR to people the story structure and it's and I always follow it up by saying like it sounds boring but it's also some of the most important stuff that happens in the industry because while we talk about beer as the product yeah. uh, the people behind it and all the ways that they have contact to the reality of the industry is such an important part of that and so I think sharing those individual stories um, and providing that kind of information is really important to show that yeah your favorite brewer down the street um, is making really good beer, but he, you know she or he is also busting their ass really long hours and getting paid, you know, enough to to do okay, but yeah. probably not the kind of effort that they put in to just pursue their passion. However, people want to run their business. Uh, I think trying to find ways to provide work-life balance is something that I, that has come up more often in conversations I've had because people go in w- eyes wide open that they know they're going to be just working, you know. 50, 60, 70 hour weeks, if not more, just to survive and make sure that they can get their business where it needs to be. Uh, And, um, you know, that can impact their lives in all sorts of ways. And I think what I was hearing from people as I was trying to tell that story was that an important part for them is now for people who have done it, trying to find ways as best they can financially, feasibly, uh, to make it a profession where people want to stay and mm. make it their long-term career because it's not just fulfilling personally, but also can provide for them in ways that maybe financially it hadn't before. Everybody gets up in arms anytime somebody sells to a big brewer or takes a large private equity, someone takes a large private equity stake in them. And it's like, oh, um, you know, oh, it's selling out. But in a lot of ways, especially in smaller breweries where people are busting their asses so much on a day-to-day basis, you know, a lot of times, since it's such a capital-intensive business, I mean, you know, we're, we're writers. Like, we're the biggest expense for any publication because it's like most publications now are online and they don't have any real physical infrastructure besides, you know, their web management and, and their servers and everything <laughs> like that. But brewers, you know... They got to fork over most of their money for equipment and for their facility and, and everything else and ingredients and all that stuff. And and that's going to affect, at least early on, what they're paying people because, you know, most of the money's got to go there. And a lot of times they'll, they'll give them, you know, a stake in the company as part of their compensation and whatnot. And then when they sell, that person who's busting their ass, um, who's barely making a living wage suddenly has a very nice bank account mm-hmm. you know and benefits of, and benefits because like <laughs> well, even if like they could choose to leave if they don't want to work for the man that's yeah. fine um but if they owned a piece of that company you know they could easily have just made six figures from that it depends on how big a state could have been seven figures you know there, the flip side of that too there's a story that i wrote for beer advocate uh in 2017 that focused on volunteering in the beer industry, um, which uh, I kind of, in my head as I was writing that piece for Good Beer Hunting, it kind of struck me as this, this spiritual connection where, you know, for a long time, volunteers, uh, aka fans, yeah. of which there are many, uh, you know, very impassioned ones, um, have offered their free time to do a variety of jobs for breweries. And so in that story, it was exploring both the good and bad side of that because there are real, real legal issues with that as much as, as, they, as it provides opportunities for people to feel more connected to something. So you're talking wants. about at breweries, not just festivals. No, I'm talking specifically at breweries okay. as some kind of labor. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, in reporting that story, um, talking to brewery owners... I heard from them things like, you know, by using volunteer labor, it allows them to buy new, cool, raw ingredients. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so instead of paying someone to, you know, bottle or something like that, they'll give a six pack to someone who comes in for a few hours and then they can use that money to buy citra hops as much as their heart desires. Um, or, uh, you know, a refrain that I think I heard a lot from brewers, uh, both in telling that story, but also just outside of it, just chatting over the last few years, is that whenever breweries... I shouldn't say whenever. Often when breweries saw um, a windfall from success early on, and rightfully so, the first idea was to invest that back in the business because mm-hmm. you could get more capacity or um, get a new piece of equipment that's going to save you time and effort. There's that work-life balance again. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're going to do something that will allow you to serve your customers better. And so I think that there are uh, two sides to both of those things. Um, and there are good and bad, and uh, I spoke with people who express as much. Um, but I think it, in, when it comes to hiring and the existence of employees, like that's another part of it too, where the way that people are thinking about how and when they're spending their money, um, whether it's from volunteers up through kind of the actual paid labor, there are a whole host of um, uh, interesting sides to that that I think, again, like get to the core personalization of the way that I, a lot of people think about you know craft beer mm-hmm. uh, as something that they feel very connected to all right let's um let's take a sort of left turn here and we're yeah, gonna, we're let's gonna, uh since since this like i focus i focus a lot you know obviously it's a drinkable globe i focus a lot mm-hmm. on travel um i like to talk to people uh particular about particularly about the areas they live because, um, you know, nobody knows it better than they do. And I also like to talk about places you like to go outside of your home city to drink. Uh, and it could be anywhere in the world. So sure. let's talk about now how long you're, you're in. I know you're in a triangle. You're in Durham proper. In Durham, North yeah. Carolina for 10 years. Okay. And you're, you're before that you were in upstate New York, right? In the Finger Lakes, I grew up in small city, Geneva, New York, which is near Rochester and Syracuse. Okay. So let's talk about, so do you get, do you get back there at all to the Rochester area? So the first time that I, it was, I went back last summer for the first time in three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, for those who are maybe alcohol uh, in the know, like the Finger Lakes where I grew up, it's wine country. I yeah. grew up on the tip of Seneca Lake in which there are a hundred wineries on the circumference. Uh, and you could, there are, it's literally stone's throw in some cases, winery to winery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I grew up in wine country in a place where beer was never really a thing. And that trip home, uh, this was summer of 2017, was the first time that I had been back to Geneva and the broader Finger Lakes area in which beer was finally becoming a thing. I grew up in a city that's surrounded, it's a very small city of 13,000 people surrounded by farmland. Um, and that beer, I always felt encapsulated in all the right ways that, you know, Rainier was a beer of choice for workers in Seattle or old style in Chicago. And it was just, that was it. Well, didn't they um, have, that was, um, uh, High Falls was the brewery, right? Yeah. Is that right? Um, didn't they, they, they had that sort of quasi they probably still do that that quasi craft brand that they did 20 years 20 years ago was it jw dundee's yes honey brown or whatever it was which oddly enough i can't remember who told me this that uh honey brown that was very widespread uh in upstate new york and for the longest time i thought that was the epitome of beer i thought that was what you drank (laughs) when you thought you were cool somebody had recently told me that it I can't remember where in the country, but it's a honey brown ale, but had been advertised as a pale ale uh, else outside of New York because the company thought... That very thought, brand? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Um, but like, like, it was that. I knew that. I knew the major national craft brands because, you know, Sam Adams was there. Um, but I think in terms of the way that people today in this moment... In this moment in time, think about what craft beer is. That really didn't exist until very, very recently. What about Saranac? Did that reach you at all? Or? Yes, Saranac, very, very big. Yeah, okay. FX Matt, um, both in terms of Saranac, Black Forest, their Schwartz beer. Utica Club. Um, Utica <laughs> Club, a favorite. Uh, Black Forest was one of the first beers that I think got me into craft beer. Mm-hmm. Um, 
at the time when I was in college, you could it's discontinued now, but at the time you could get 32-ounce growlers at Wegmans for, I don't know, like three or four bucks or something like that. And so I thought that was the coolest thing, you know, as a precarious, like, 21-year-old buying beer myself for the first time, and I could go to the store and buy, it looked like a moonshine bottle, and I thought that was really cool. Um, so that's been big. Jenny, obviously... Um, and it was this trip home, and I, I ended up writing a story about it, too, about kind of this changing moment in time where um, because of what's happened on a national level and because of slight changes in state laws in New York, it's opened up the door for a lot of um, small-time craft breweries to exist in, in the Finger Lakes. Well, Ithaca, I mean, obviously. Ithaca beer, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeff O'Neill obviously did wonders there mm-hmm. uh, when he was brewing there as well. But that's the thing. is like when you think of these, so uh, Ithaca, so we're talking about Ithaca, uh, Ithaca beer, mm-hmm. uh, Jenny Cream Ale, um, uh, FX Matt, which is in Syracuse, which I wouldn't necessarily describe as part of the Finger Lakes so much as it's mm-hmm. uh, within it, so that's fine. But, I mean, we're talking about like two or three brands and I don't my you know this is uh more than a decade ago at this point looking back to think about where beer was when I lived there um but in terms of locally produced brands that gained interest either locally regionally or nationally I wasn't really there I don't think it was really there so did you did you get to Syracuse at all I mean I know you didn't go to you didn't go to school there right Mm -mm. I mean, it was there in terms of, you know, like as a teenager, that's a place where you could go hang out at their giant mall and stuff like that. But as a drinking age adult in the Finger Lakes for both in college and then uh, for a little over a year afterward... Um, Did you cross the border a lot? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I did. No, that's actually a great point. So uh, because the legal drinking age is 19 in Canada, um, so that was starting sophomore year of college. Every summer I would do a trip to Niagara Falls with a few of my friends. We'd uh, get a really, really bad tent and sleep at like a KOA <laughs> campground. And then we'd take uh, a taxi into like, downtown Niagara Falls and I'm, uh, you bring up the Honey Brown Ale, uh, both, again, this we thought this was the most amazing beer, so we'd go out and we'd order pictures of Honey Brown Ale and thought that we were living, you know, our best lives at one <laughs> time. And that was like, you know, that was a moment in time where we, we knew nothing, and so, you know, now that I've been thinking about beer for way too much for years, and I think about people in, like, San Diego, who, when they're coming to, you know, uh, beer consciousness as a 21-year-old, mm. maybe a little bit earlier, because beer scene exists there I like I cannot I literally cannot fathom what that must have been like because I grew up in an area where you know the options were the Molson XXX in our parents fridge yeah. or you know one of those brands that we're mentioning here whereas if you were in one of the craft beer hotspots like you knew that stuff existed um, maybe not in a way that you understood the industry itself but you knew like there was more than just five or six beers mm. and I don't think that I did now you you know you you moved to Durham. So you said ten years ago, so two thousand eight. Yes. Um, so at, that was already at the sort of the height of North Carolina beer. Or at least it was really on the climb at that point. So it was you, early in the climb. But but you moved. I mean, it was pretty much an established scene when you moved there. And uh, I would say no. Oh no. What I would it? say it was close to that. So in two thousand six, the it was. There was a lobbying effort. The movement was called Pop the Cap, which allowed for the change in alcohol sales above 6%. And so when I got there two years later, um, there was there was certainly a beer scene going on in the state, but I would say that it probably wasn't until maybe about 2010 or 11, in okay. which I think that the state, um, and the Triangle especially, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, where I live, um, started to really kind of get a footing. Uh, and so the way that people think about and talk about Asheville, for example, they were certainly progressive in terms of yeah. the state beer scene. But um, and this maybe is my ignorance because, again, I, I live on the opposite side of the state. But from my point of view, my biased point of view, I would say Asheville, it probably wasn't even a couple of years later. So maybe like 2012, 2013, until I think that that Asheville as a beer, a real beer destination that people wanted to talk about became a thing. And so, you know, in the last five years, the number of breweries in North Carolina has essentially tripled. Yeah. Um, we're maybe about 260 all in in the state. Um, it's been going back That's and forth. pretty remarkable. For the triangle, the triangle's been really interesting, though. So yeah. I, I've lived in Durham 
and the city proper my entire 10 years there. Yeah. Uh, and for the longest time, we had more bottle shops than we did actual production breweries. Oh, really? And it's just now we have the same amount, which I think there's six, <laughs> six of each. Uh, the beer scene's very progressive, and you can find all sorts of amazing stuff. But Durham, um, with a small, si- a small number of production breweries, Raleigh, which is 20 miles away, uh, has twice that many. And I would argue, again, this is my assumption um, that real estate values at that time, so we're talking you know, several years ago in Durham, were definitely cheaper than in Raleigh, Raleigh being the state capital especially, and being a bit more established. The way that Durham's changed um, in business and residential growth and all of that has probably shifted it a little bit, but mm. even by residential prices, Durham is still significantly cheaper to live than Raleigh or Chapel Hill. Oh, and so I never understood why Durham itself couldn't find more people to open up production breweries in the city. Um, it's a large footprint, but for the longest time, as you find elsewhere in the country, you know there are industrial buildings that decades ago it was all tobacco mm-hmm. that were empty. Um, Full Steam, which is probably one of the more well-known breweries oh, yeah, in yeah. Durham, um, they opened up their brewery in an old warehouse that, um, if I remember correctly, there was nothing there at the point in and time. And they're, they're not that old. They're only like six years old, I think? That or? was 2011, okay, I want to so say. Okay, so seven and seven years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. And for the longest time, and, and this may this may be like a great example, for the longest time, Full Steam was the representative brewery of North Carolina, even after it had only been open for two or three years. Oh, wow. And part, part of that was because, you know, from the start, Sean Willie Wilson, the owner, put a very um, a very big priority on connecting to community. And mm-hmm. so he went to, he got uh, his graduate degree from Duke, and so he had spent time in Durham, um, and he was very passionate about integrating the community into the brewery and the brewery's community from the get-go. And so there was that, but also a case where uh, one of their um, focuses as a brewery is to use North Carolina ingredients. Sweet potatoes, uh, malt, oh, yeah, yeah. it's gotten much more exotic in the last couple of years for foraged ingredients as well. That's right. I included, as a matter of fact, I, I interviewed Sean. Uh, there was a section in my first book that was on sweet potato beer, mm-hmm. and I actually interviewed him for that. Now that I Carver Sweet Potato Lager. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Which at the time, when they that was one of their flagships and still is, um, I don't know if I could name another sweet potato beer that existed in the U.S. I've definitely tried a couple since, um, but that to be like that was their, you know, their flag in the sand as a statement that you know they were committed to what was going on in North Carolina and North Carolina farmers. And so I think that in terms of the narrative of how the brewery existed and how it wanted to exist made it very popular both locally but also it was regularly cited in the in press and national press and so to have that brewery and again like rightfully so be a representative of the state of north carolina after only existing for a few years is both uh i think it says something about the state which has certainly changed since then but it's also pretty remarkable in terms of what the full steam built early on well the the way that the state has changed Asheville's always had its thing um i think uh there's a brewery winston-salem it being a smaller city but also still one of the major cities in the state um there's a brewery that just recently opened called wise man that has focused on new england ipas Mm -hmm. and from the collection that i've had i think that they're very very good um in charlotte which, you know, Asheville being kind of, the, you know, the number one beer city in the state, Charlotte, I would probably do number two with a bullet, both in the number of breweries they have, but also in the variety. Um, Heist, Heist Brewing, which is a brew pub in the Noda district uh, of North Davidson district of Charlotte, um, they rose to local prominence because they started doing hazy things. They started out as kind of like a Belgian-inspired brewery, but mm. then the brewer thought about, he fell in love with what Trillium and Treehouse was doing, started experimenting with hazy stuff, and they started getting lines out the door. Uh, so if that's what you're into, that's great. There's a brewery called Free Range, uh, which specializes kind of in the same way that Full Steam does in trying to incorporate agriculture in all of its various forms into the beers that they make. Uh, and there's a brewery like Legion, um, which just kind of up and down, 
in my experiences there, hasn't made a bad beer at all. Like, you could go there, you know, with someone who's not a beer fan, and it's one of those situations where you could find something, whether it's, you know, a kettle soured something something for someone who only likes wine, or, you know, a, a Mexican locker for someone who's into something a little bit easier. Their Juicy J, which is an IPA, obviously, is and has forever been their number one seller, but you know, these are just a few examples, I think, of the way that that city has changed and continues to change. Um, as uh, like that industry in particular kind of latches on, and I think in like Old Mecklenburg, which you can only get in um, in that county, in the city of Charlotte, immediately outside, makes some of the best American influenced German beers I think I've ever had. Um, and the same goes for something like No Da Brewing. They mm. came to prominence because they won a gold medal uh, for their uh, for their IPA, Hop Drop and Roll. And that kind of put them on this otherworldly track where they immediately expanded and people couldn't drink enough of their beer. Uh, so I think there's a lot going on for, for everybody, uh, you know, east of where Asheville exists, too. Okay, that's a good start. Now you got to list the other 240 remaining breweries. <laughs> Come on. Go. No, got just, like kidding. just kidding. 18, 20 in the triangle. So, um, yeah. so, so tell me, um, top three places to drink in Durham and or the greater sure. triangle so uh when i when people come to visit i always take to durham i always take them to fullestine because and i tell them the reason why i like to take people there regardless of if you know they have a beer that you like or not or even if you don't like beer mm-hmm. um it's so a part of the durham community i think that you get a good cross-section of what it means to be somebody who's living in durham at that moment in time um, and so it's not even necessarily for the beer of which there are plenty of good ones to choose from, but just the sheer fact that I think it's representative thematically of what I would want to show somebody coming to visit Durham, um, as well. Um, in, in Asheville, uh, I, I visit the Funkatorium, Wicked Weeds Funkatorium, which is their barrel aged focused tap room, uh, because it's some of the best, you know, wild, sour, mixed-form beers that I think that you can find easily at reasonable prices. And this is before, you know, whatever price influence people may see because of Anheuser-Busch. Um, like, it's just, it's a good place to sit and drink in a wooden building that's often quiet and where you can just kind of relax and hang out with I people. wonder how many people are going to be adding you on Twitter just for <laughs> mentioning Wicked Wheel, all the, all the sort of... <laughs> I will, I will never begrudge anybody for making a business choice because that's the, like, I have no skin in the game. And if your goal is to make money and expand your business, then so be it. And, you know, for people who visit Wicked Weed, if that means more people can enjoy their beer and ultimately think about beer in a different way, then I think that's, that's a refrain that's said by anybody, whether yeah. you're a big conglomerate or the Brewers Association, their shared goal is to get more people to drink beer. And so I think if you do that, then more power to you. Um, so there's, those are two, I think, that are kind of iconic in terms of the way that I like to in, like to show people. Um, a third one that I, that I think I sadly don't get there very often, it's Hall River Farmhouse Ales uh, in Saxapahaw, North Carolina, which is, a very, is it's a very <laughs> tiny, it's, if you keep going outside of Chapel Hill, outside of Pittsburgh, which is outside Chapel Hill, and keep on going into, into the country, uh, Saxapahaw, North Carolina, Hall River Farmhouse Ales, uh, it's a very small tap room, but doing just incredible various barrel-aged things. Um, they've got clean beers, but they're, they're sour, mixed room, wild stuff. is just excellent. Uh, and that, I think, is special just because you have to put a little bit of effort to go there and see what it's about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would happily include their beers amongst any others that if someone came and I said, I want to show you what North Carolina beer is about, then this is a place to start. All right, so now I want to move on to top three places in the United States outside of North Carolina that you like to drink? Sure. Um, It could be specific bars or it could just be cities in general. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I really enjoyed... um, I really enjoyed visiting Austin, Texas two times in the last two years. And uh, I actually haven't been to their brewery, but Live Oaks Hefeweizen. Uh, so this is a brewery in Austin. Oh, I've been to Live. Yeah, well, I was yeah. I was there. God, must have been eight years ago. So I don't know if they've ex- they must have expanded since. A then, little but. bit. Their um, their Hefeweizen is I would argue it is the best I've ever had, American or not. Mm-hmm. 
Um, to my taste buds, that's just everything I would want out of it. Uh, wild card because it's easy. Jester King in Austin, outside of Austin, everybody goes there. But that's that's an experience unto itself. Um, I really enjoy back home in Penyan, New York. There. Penn Yan, New York. What part of the state's that? This is the Finger Lakes. Oh, so this is, is about 20, maybe 20 minute drive from where I grew up in Geneva. Abandoned Brewing. I went to Abandoned Brewing this, not long after they opened, maybe, um, this is a rough estimate, five years ago. Uh, and that was the first time and only time I had ever been to Penn Yan outside of going there in high school for a sporting event. There was no reason for me as like a conscious adult to go to Penyan. It's a tiny city like any other in that area, just not much going on. Uh, Abandoned Brewing, um, as so many other places are in the Finger Lakes, it sits on a hill where you're overlooking wineries and Mm. you have just this beautiful view of giant lake and, you know, hopefully clear blue skies. It's just, um, I think it's a very special place to like stand out on a patio and again, it gets back to this idea. If I wanted someone to think about what it meant to drink beer in the Finger Lakes, that one specific spot, that one specific view, I think was really good. Um, and a third place that I really like to drink uh, in Seattle. I've been to Seattle several times to visit my brother. Ooh, actually, uh, it's on Bainbridge Island. And this, the brewery's name, I cannot remember for the life of me. Uh, it's on Bainbridge Island. It's this little kind of like a garage setup with mm-hmm. this guy who makes some of the most amazing uh, Belgian beers uh, that I've had in that region. Um, Humulus Lupus is the name of their double IPA that got me hooked on kind of paying attention to them. I thought that was really, really good. But again, it's like you take a ferry to this island outside of Seattle and you sit out at picnic tables in you know what is typically kind of uh, it's either rainy or crisp and beautiful, uh, and you're just. Kind <laughs> I've never of, heard crisp and beautiful <laughs> to describe Seattle. Seattle. I've been out there a lot in the summer, so I'm lucky <laughs> that I get that kind of weather. Um, but uh, I wish I could remember the name of it. But um, it's places like when I think about good places that make me excited about drinking beer, it's not necessarily the beer so much as like I want it to be representative of that place and time and how I want to feel. That's why I need to get a producer. I need somebody who can like look this shit up <laughs> on the fly. <laughs> it's like. Bainbridge Island Brewery. There's all, I know there's a there's a distillery on Bainbridge Island now too. I can't remember the name of that either, yeah. but I just I just wrote if it's a, it's a googling situation, it'll yeah. be easy to figure. Yeah, out. Yeah, it's probably there can't be that many. But. Yeah. Um, all right, so that takes care of the United States. Let's talk internationally now. Top three uh, places outside of the U.S. Um, it could include Madrid if you had the great Madrid experience yeah. here. Uh, so I've I've traveled. Probably more than the average American, but I would say not a lot. I've been to... I did a trip to um, Ireland. But you focus on a beer a lot when you travel, so... I mean, it's, I mean, you it's certainly it out. part of the way that I think about yeah, it. So, so, you know, my, my first... I, I would say crossing the border to go to Canada always felt very close to home, and with the exception of maybe Quebec or Montreal... Um, those city, uh, those two cities felt foreign to me, yeah. um, and so those were different. But it was never a case where I think I knew about beer. My in 2008, my first real, real abroad experience, I went to Ireland and having a beer on top of the uh, the 360 glass Guinness bar at the top of the brewery. Again, like it's that thing where you're looking over the city of Dublin, and you have the beer that is most synonymous with the city. And yeah. that's, I think that's really special. Whether you like beer or not, just to go through the tour, just kind of see the connection between the brewery and the, and the city, um, just because it, for, as Americans, that's such a big part of, um, of our assumption of, of Irish beer culture. Um, I really liked uh, in... See, I've been to Costa Rica, but didn't visit any breweries there. Uh, I mean, how many could there be there? There are large ones. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I drank, you know, the local lager yeah. as I looked over a farm. Like, I was staying at a B- Air- or Airbnb, just a B&B. Yeah. Uh, drinking a, uh, a Costa Rican lager. Yeah, well, that's, um, you know, that's a one-in-room kind of deal. But, and, and I think, you know, my, the way that I think about beer, especially when I travel, um, partially because if I'm traveling with other people... I don't want to make it about the beers that I want to drink. 
Um, it's certainly a part of, like, I will seek things out, but I don't travel for beer so much as beer is part of my travels. Yeah. Um, my normal behavior is I like to walk and eat and drink my way through a city, mm. you know, it's, which is the drink is almost exclusively beer-focused, but I see it as an opportunity to both, like, experience in one particular way and then uh, both by my feet and by my taste buds, like, how I might be able to get a sense for what's happening there mm. in that time. Um, and so, you know, and the third example is probably reflective of that. When my wife and I were in Como um, in Italy, in which it was hard for me to find uh, good beer otherwise, there was, a, of all places in Como, they had a very well-stocked beer bar, and it was the one, the first and only time I ever had Tipo pills, um, mm. which, you know, is the inspiration for Pivo pills, Firestone Walkers, who oh, loved yeah. beer. Tipo Pills, the is this hoppy lager um, that is made by an Italian brewery that I would probably happily say it's one of the best beers that I've had, and it's probably because it was in that moment in time of sitting with my wife at this bar where we're you know we they bring out the plate of meats and cheeses for us to snack on as we're having a glass of wine and a beer kind of thing, and like that's exactly what I would have wanted out of that that stay in, in Como. See, that's what I think. I think more um, beer criticism needs to uh, sort of incorporate the experience element to it. I mean, every everyone's so focused on, you know, beer reviews are just obviously all about the beers themselves and everything like that. But I, I really feel like um, context plays a lot in yeah. the experience, and it can elevate the crappiest beers. And I and I feel like. I feel like that's sort of undercovered in yeah. in in beer journalism. I have, um, I have a personal rule which started out just at its practical necessity, but it has since changed into not a personal stance, but just an ease. So I don't travel with beer. I never bring beer with me yeah. wherever I'm going. Um, Why would you want to check a bag? It, it started. <laughs> it started out um, because. Like, I just didn't want to worry about packing it and maybe it'll break and then I have to check the bag and why do I want to spend 20 minutes standing around for a bag? Uh, and then it's just become a case where I think it, it's shifted both. It's still practical, but also a case like, I'd rather just drink it where it's canned and meant to be drank. Yeah. Like, that's okay with me. I've got so many good options when I go back home to North Carolina that, you know, if I, like, I adore Live Oak uh, Hefeweizen, uh, but I'm not going to bring a six-pack of it back with me because it's just like I can go home and I can still drink a bunch of wonderful things and I'll have this wonderful memory of next time in Austin I'd damn well better be finding that live oak hefeweizen because I'm really excited about drinking it uh, and I'd rather share beers that I end up with in a location with other people and just have that be a thing rather than like I don't need more beer at home exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean that, that's it's funny because a, a while ago I don't really bring much home anymore unless like somebody's really giving me something but um especially beer because it's just like you know sometimes i'll if it's a spirit or something and i feel like checking i'll have like a little tiny bottle it doesn't take up much room in the sure. in the suitcase but when, when it comes to beer you can't really bring back you're gonna want to bring back more than a bottle or two so usually it's gonna be six bottles and it's like and then you're, you're already weighted down at that point i mean i used to i used to bring stuff back um but I got to the point where I think it was very much like sort of like you're saying like a very of the moment kind of beer because a lot of times it would just sit on my shelf and I wouldn't touch it because it was like oh I got to bring this home and it was like oh I loved it so much why am I not drinking it right now you know and it yeah. was just so then by then it's 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 already not nearly as good as it used to be and I end up dumping some of it out I mean obviously uh. I didn't do that with, like, West Vlaterin or anything like that. I was just visiting recently a friend in Kansas City who has been stocking a beer cellar for about five years. And I tease him about it all the time because he doesn't drink it. Yeah. Um, and so when I went to visit him, I explicitly told him, we're going to drink through some of the bottles that you have because you don't need this. He has about 100 bottles that he's accumulated. <laughs> from stops in um in wisconsin new york and elsewhere he now lives in kansas city uh and so we went one night we were just going to hang out at his place and it's like let's just pull out some bottles or make sure we know what we're going to drink and he starts going through and tell me what has happened they're all five years old <laughs> and so we ended up drinking it was like 
three bottles that were five years old and one that was three and a half years I old. None of them were lagers because that was yeah, just. Yeah, they were all you know versions of like sour this and that oh. or something like that. And like at this point, like they're fine, but they're not what you would want as a drinker, and probably not was in, what was intended when it was bottled. But yeah. you know, you could go a year or two and it'd be fine. But. It's just like, you know, let's all enjoy it for what it is and just, you know, you don't need stuff. I have, I have a, my closet is my beer cellar and I've had a Black Tuesday sitting there that I was gifted two years ago. And like, all I want to do is just get someone to drink it with me. Mm. But it's like, I don't have a lot of people I can say, let's sit down and drink a 19% beer. Well, great. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so well, if you're looking, it's Brian Ron. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Okay, I think we probably should wrap this up now. This is a good place to to end. Uh, we have to catch a flight back to the states tomorrow yes, early, yes. and uh, well, not that early, but we got to get up early. Um, so t- just plug whatever you want. Tell people where to find you on social media and wherever. Sure, uh, it's Brian B R Y A N D Roth. Brian D Roth is across Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm most commonly found in terms of my new stuff at goodbeerhunting.com. Uh, if you want to find some geeky stuff, this is why I'm drunk.blog. And as always, you can find me, Jeff Cialetti, on Twitter, Drinkable Globe, on Instagram. Remember to buy the book, The Drinkable Globe, available everywhere you can find a book, usually. It's been a pleasure having you, Brian. It's always great to have a podcaster on because they make the best <laughs> conversationalists and it means I have to talk less. I don't have to worry about the trick. finding questions. So this has been phenomenal thank and thank you for doing this and thank you for having me on uh, your show as well. This is like going to be my first crossover. So this is, this is fantastic. It's Avengers style at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Official crossover here <laughs> right now. Um, and uh, remember, the world is out there. Drink it up. The drinker.